On Criminal Injustice, we've talked with prosecutors and police, judges and journalists, advocates and the incarcerated. Where do we go from here? Time to look back and forward to new things. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, and I'm still, yes, still so amazingly thankful for that fantastic day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Well, folks, here we are. As you are hearing this, we have completed six years of this podcast. We launched in March of 2016 in the wake of the events in Ferguson, Missouri, the killing of Michael Brown by a police officer in 2014, the exoneration of that police officer. The Department of Justice reports on that event on the use of St. Louis County's entire justice system to collect revenue using the criminal justice system to tax, jail, and fine the poorest people disproportionately people of color. This led to a huge investment in police body cameras, the subject of our very first episode, and it led to the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, which described a new path forward for America's police. In the wake of these momentous events, it seemed to me that even the best media coverage out there of these issues was not deep enough. That was really the moment that brought me to the idea for criminal injustice. And in March of 2016, we launched. In the years after that, we brought you important voices from every corner of the system as we considered different aspects of that system that sorely needed reform and change. The war on drugs, of course, but also cash bail systems, faulty forensics, changes to interrogation techniques and witness identification practices, the heavy poison of race in the system. We looked closely at the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, in which the U.S. Department of Justice brought implicit bias training, procedural justice training, and racial reconciliation to Pittsburgh, where we're based, and five other pilot cities. We looked at the latest research on an array of topics from the impact of homicide on cities and their economies to the death of the death penalty. And we heard from authors of some very provocative and important books. We've examined the election of progressive prosecutors. And then with the murder of George Floyd in 2020, we looked even harder at the way that race, violence, and other phenomena permeate the system, and we examine the demands for deep, systemic change around the country that followed Mr. Floyd's death. We've even asked, is police reform dead? And we've asked people who have lived in prison what it's really like to return from incarceration. And we had the chance to ask a person living on death row how he can live a meaningful life. In all of this, I've tried to ask the questions you might have wanted to, to inform everyone listening at a deeper level than you might get from even the best of the mainstream media. And I have been incredibly lucky, I want to say. I've always had great partners in this effort. WESA Pittsburgh, uh, the public radio station here uh, in our first years, 
and that included the producing help of Megan Harris when she was working there. And above all else, the producing expertise, help, encouragement, and extraordinary smarts and good sense of Josh Rollerson, my producer. We began working together when he was at WESA, and he continued with the show after he left the station and has remained a most important part of the effort up to and including right now. Now, Josh and I are here together on this show with an announcement. This will be the last criminal injustice episode. Now, maybe not forever, because we never say never, right? But at least for a good long stretch. Josh and I both have lives outside of this venture, day jobs, families, the whole of life, and we both are feeling the need to move on for now from the podcast as it has been. Josh will be laying down his producing superpowers. Uh, Life with a young family is a busy thing, and he's ready for new ways to grow and spend his time. I'm ready for at least a long break, too. My personal life has changed some, and professionally, I have never been busier doing the work of pushing for change and transformation in the criminal legal system. And I have to say, while I have dearly loved every bit of making this show every time, and I have learned so much, putting up new content regularly, it's a beast, folks, and you must continuously feed that beast. I think we've done exceptionally well at that, um, but it's time to be able to devote some of that time and energy to new things, too. Looking ahead, perhaps uh, there'll be a move towards short news pieces and features with maybe an occasional interview. Keep yourself subscribed. At this point, it's just really hard to tell. All of the current content and past content will remain available on our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, and we're working on a tool right now to give you easier access to all of our content. You'll still be able to write to me on the website, too. I might try some other podcasting gigs. I'm certainly game for that. I do love the microphone, and working with this incredibly personal and adaptable medium has really been fun. But for now, it's time for some new things. Above all else, I have to say thanks to you, to all of you who have listened, who have sent comments or questions, told me you like something, suggested guests to us, all of that. This was all done for the people who were listening. The benefits to me, the people I've gotten to meet and all I've had the chance to learn and hear about through doing this, that only happened because there were folks out there like you listening now who wanted to hear it too. No listeners, no podcast. So thank you ever so much for being part of our audience. It has meant more to me than you can possibly imagine. I'm going to miss doing this a lot, and I'm going to miss talking to you. And I can think of no one I'd rather be with for this episode than the man himself, Josh Rollerson, my producer, my ace in the hole, one of the best, smartest, most aware people I've had the privilege to get to know, and the person without whom none of this would have happened. Josh, so glad you're here, and I'm so happy we're going to land this particular plane 
together. Thanks for being with me. I wouldn't be anywhere else, but you, you forgot good looking in that long list. Oh, of you're right. You're right. I did forget that. Really, way, way too much, but thank you. <laughs> Believe me, the pleasure is mine. Uh, I thought uh, for this episode, we should probably just start by talking about where you and I think we are with this enterprise. What made it worthwhile to us? what our own personal highlights were, that sort of thing. And, and I got to say a lot in the introduction about you, but maybe you'd like to say some things about where you're at <laughs> sure. instead of having me do it. Well, I mean, you hit the most important points. From where I sit, it's been a, a good long run, and I'm um, tired. <laughs> I'm busy. As you mentioned, I've got, I've got young kids, and the last couple of years have really kind of changed our family dynamic as it has for a lot of people, Pretty much I every imagine. Family. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, getting older and thinking about how I'm spending my time and where I can have the most impact. Uh, it, it just felt like time to move move along, I think. I, I share your feelings. I mean, this has been great. Uh, and it has been an extraordinary run. I don't know that either of us, I'm certainly not me, would have thought you're going to be doing this for six years at least. Uh, there's no way you could have convinced me of that. It was a wonderful experiment, and we got it off and running, and it just took off. I realized not long ago that I've now worked on this show longer than I ever worked at WESA. <laughs> oh, my so god! This is my longest-running radio gig. There you are. There you are. Well, it has been what it has been because of the way that you've taken care of it and me and encouraged me to get better. Uh, and given me all kinds of help and support at everything that we have done. I couldn't have done this without you. Let's just switch uh, topics here just a little bit. Can you remember what got you interested in the first place? Because I came to you with a pitch. You came at exactly the right moment with the pitch that you had. Uh, at that time, so this would have been late 2015, middle of 2015 maybe? Yeah. Uh, at that time, I had been the morning host on WESA for a few years. Tough gig. Tough gig. Was looking for ways to do something not necessarily different, but more, something just to grow. And um, it seemed to me at the time, I was really excited about podcasting. And it's, You were doing one yourself, weren't I was, you? I was doing a lot of experimental kind of stuff in the podcast space at that time, and most of it didn't amount to anything, but this one kind of did. Um, at the time, it was. It seemed to me that something that public radio stations, in particular, would be really well positioned to, mm -hmm. you know, to take advantage of and really do some great things. And a few years on, like we're really seeing that happening. Stations are really, as opposed to the the NPR level and the national shows, regionally focused, hyper local uh, programming like that is really coming out of a lot of these NPR stations. So. It's gratifying to see it. I wish it had happened a little bit sooner, but that was that was what I was dreaming about when you came along. And right off the bat, your pitch checked so many of the boxes. I mean, the, the, the biggest ones being, you know, you talk about feeding the beast. The best, one of the best ways to keep the beast fed is to have somebody that has inexhaustible knowledge on the subject <laughs> and a lot of contacts, a sense of what's current, what's relevant, and ability to talk about all those things compellingly with minimal preparation, kind of at the drop of a hat, and, and you brought all those things. And I knew that already because you were a semi-regular guest yeah. on our on our mm -hmm. talk show. So I knew that you knew your stuff and were good at talking about it. So you kind of brought this idea to us gift-wrapped. So, well. so for me, it was like, how can uh, Megan and I and the station support this? And for all of the things that you just said, the gargantuan, like the lion's share, obviously, has been yours and your effort and your you. tireless <laughs> commitment <laughs> and energy. 
we just kind of push some buttons and it's been really fun and a great privilege to be able to ride your coattails these last six years. Well, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, uh, for me, it was the chance to work with real professionals like you and like Megan and uh, uh, to have a real a real shot at going deeper into some of these things that, that made a difference to me. Well, I'll say that's the other thing that was in my mind when you came along. That is something that they always say about public radio in particular. It's mm-hmm. this medium is so well suited for spending the time and getting at the nuance and getting the, you know, the breadth of perspectives. And that's all true. But in the summer of 2014 and Ferguson, that was when it was really beginning to dawn on me that like, I don't know that the way we've been approaching this is really up to the task. Mm-hmm. I remember coming in for my morning shift at 4 a.m. and overnight it was uh, it was BBC World Service coverage. And where NPR was just doing, you know, sort of drop-ins at the top of the hour, here's what's happening with, with Michael Brown, here's what's happening with Ferguson. It's all in a newscast. Maybe they'll do a longer segment in the magazine shows. But it was all kind of packaged that way. And it was only sitting there at the, this ungodly hour listening to the BBC coverage, which was continuous. And a lot of it was just – it wasn't even really anchored. It was just audio and video from – the streets of Ferguson. Uh-huh. I remember, wow. you know, I would go to bed and the protests would be going on and I would wake up and come in the next morning and they would still be going. And I, I would feel like, I don't know how many people are, are witnessing this right now, but this is bigger than it might seem if all you ever heard were, you know, four minute newscasts. Uh-huh. And this really is going to, this is a subject that's not going to go away and it shouldn't go away. And it's going to take a lot more sustained, thoughtful and knowledgeable coverage to do it justice. And that's what we were able to do. That was the goal. Yeah. It was such a, a, a wonderful opportunity to go in, push ahead on some of those things. Uh, and for me to do that with some people who really knew what they were doing as far as putting out a product, what an, what a, an opportunity that was. It was a chance to uh, take what I had done for not just the public radio station, uh, WESA, but for many other media outlets. I've been doing uh, media commentary and and helping out uh, outlets of all kinds for years and had really just gotten to the point where I just wanted more. And I thought, well, who better to do it? And uh, you, you folks gave me the chance. You cannot underestimate the value of the fact that there was no general manager in the station then. <laughs> uh, they, they were trying to fill the position, as I remember. But that made it so there was nobody to say no. Exactly. And we could jump right ahead, and that's what we did. Tell me, were there certain themes of the show that you thought that, that really stuck out to you? What was most meaningful to you? I think uh, the things that the show has done really well, really consistently, all grow out of, you know, your background and your scholarship and the work that you've done. I think about the way you have debunked a lot of junk science and Mm. bad ideas and misconceptions about the criminal justice system. And I think about the emphasis on accounting for technological change and how that right. you know impacts these systems and really trying to um, anticipate what's coming next from the get-go those were those are really strengths and then as the show kind of evolved I came to really love uh, the way that you got focused on telling people's stories real people mm-hmm. uh, often people that had been in the system or had a brush with the system some of them police officers some of them prosecutors a lot of them but you know 
people who had been incarcerated, uh, people who had lost family members. That's where it got really real and human and poignant in a way that I thought really kind of made the best use of this medium and this format. Yeah. And I I have to say uh, that for me, as the show went on, uh, especially in these last couple of years, and I was exposed in the outside of the podcast part of my life to more and more people who had been incarcerated, that began to have a big impact on me. And when we began to interview those folks in a lot of different contexts, uh, I sensed uh, and found uh, a really deep well of wisdom and experience in those people uh, that we talked to. Some of those interviews uh, have had a lasting impact on my uh, on the way I think about the world, on the way that I think uh, about the system, of course, but just on the way I think about human beings mm-hmm. and who they are and how they live. And you know, when you get right down to it, that's all. That's the content of every good story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about who people are and how they make their way. And sometimes the circumstances that we have heard about that led people to be where they are are, uh, are really difficult. And listening to how people have, have traversed that, that to me has been incredibly valuable and interesting. I've also, of course, just because it's been my bread and butter for so long, uh, speaking with uh, – actors in the system, whether it's people who are prosecutors or people who are police officers, they might be chiefs, they might not be, um, um, folks who have been there. Um, I value experience in most of my interactions with people. It's not enough. Uh, I value data and science and study as well. But I have found those, um, those discussions with people, people who've been in leadership in one way or another, so incredibly interesting because they really tell you how the system works in a way that is not about any of the sound bites that we get constantly, not about the Twitter arguments, things like that. Uh, you get a sense of, of how difficult it is to deal with real problems and real people on a daily basis. And that to me has been so valuable over and over. In some ways, that's kind of the dilemma of this sort of I don't know if we call it journalism, but whatever mm-hmm. it is we're doing, you know, it's it's putting a human face on it and telling the human stories and making that the entry point for looking at a system because these injustices are perpetrated, you know, sometimes by individuals. I mean, I guess arguably mm-hmm. always by individuals, but at the end of the day, it's the system that, <laughs> that's the cause of it. It's really hard to kind of uh, grapple with that set of ideas with the tools at our disposal, but I think you've done that really well. Well, thanks. Yeah, and, you know, one of the episodes that really brought that into full circle was the one that we did recently with the folks from Tucson. Mm. Uh, this was uh, a man who was a deputy chief, a woman who was a community uh, organizer and educator, and a gentleman from the Quatron Center, John Holway, uh, and they talked about doing a full system review of two in-custody deaths um, with all stakeholders in a way that was not about blame. Mm-hmm. And for me, what that talked about, what, you know, too often our discussions are, you know, are they going to charge this police officer or not? Is he going to get convicted or not? Is this person uh, uh, guilty or not? Um, but in order to really understand the problems, you have to understand, just like you said, that they come from 
the system allowing these things to happen. And what, what I found so interesting about that conversation was that they were talking in a way that we just don't hear about uh, when we talk about the criminal legal system generally. And you could see that as people, it had also brought them closer. They became friends, I suppose, is one way to put it. But the community, according to all of them, coming from different perspectives, had really been brought together by the experience of looking at the problems in a new way. And I thought that was just, that was amazing. Listening to you talk about this, I have to ask, are you optimistic about the problems that we've been talking about for the last six years? Do you feel that progress has been made? Do you see possibility of progress ahead? There's no progress without a lot of struggle, argument, and difficulty. And uh, as as uh, galvanizing as the death of Michael Brown was, and how it really served as, you know, the the thing that that pushed me and then the show in a certain direction, uh, the death of George Floyd was was that and and so much more. Uh, we all know that there was a huge national outcry and an international outcry even and a demand for reforms and change that went actually beyond reform and change to where lots of people were saying, burn it down. We, we just can't have this anymore. Uh, it is designed to harm people, particularly black and brown people. Um, I do see the prospect for change because doors and possibilities are open now that just weren't before. Uh, in, in the various meetings, if it's a task force, if it's a whatever that I am in, a panel discussion, uh, people are saying things and they're acting on things that just wouldn't have been seen as possibilities in the, in the past and that I think are, are actually real good solutions. Mm -hmm. Personally, uh, I see no good progress down the road of uh, the idea that we should just eliminate police. But even I have been moved in a new direction by the events of the last couple of years. I say even I because I had so much experience with the ideas uh, that were current before George Floyd's death. Um, I'm now thinking somewhat differently about it. I am thinking police are one part of the solution. But so, you know, for so long, we just, you know, anytime there was a public safety issue of any kind, we just thought police, how many police, where are we going to put the police? We got to have another class of police. Now, the idea is police have their place, perhaps. This is my own thinking for what it's worth. Uh, and we certainly need them, but we need so much more in terms of supporting the entire community's safety and well-being. And police are one part of it. The whole system that we think of as criminal justice, whether it's police, prisons, prosecution, whatever, needs to be a whole lot smaller and more focused on the things that we actually need it for. That's kind of where it's come for me. Well, I got to point out, though, that some of what you're talking about, like you were already there <laughs> before mm -hmm. George Floyd, before a lot of people, and particularly the idea that we need alternatives to law enforcement for some of these problems well, that, true that ultimately are not police yeah. issues. We were talking about those things. That is true. Yeah. So, okay, looking back, and it's been, I don't even know how many episodes I should at this point, but... Uh, 150. Then that's just the interviews. That's just the interviews, right. 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 And then, so... Uh, Hundreds bonus of Bonus episodes. Yes. Uncountable. Yeah. Uh, any favorites that stand out from that oh, gosh. huge mass of content? Uh, yeah. It's like having 150 children. You couldn't pick a favorite, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I will give you a few that really do stand out for me. Uh, 
we had some episodes in which we talked to police leaders, many episodes like that, but particularly police leaders who are African-American. And to me, what is so interesting about that is that these are people who head these institutions and agencies that have often been wrong and oppressive to those very same groups that they belong to. So they could not only comment uh, like uh, Tracy Cassie did in episode 15 when she was deputy chief in New York, uh, about training and things like that that she was deeply, deeply knowledgeable about. She could talk about being a black police commander. Matthew Horace in episode 96, same thing, wrote a fabulous book about being black and blue. And those discussions I thought were so incredibly revealing. My interview with uh, Lynn Novick, uh, she's a colleague of uh, Ken Burns who's made all those documentaries on PBS, and she, uh, uh, with one of her colleagues, made that four-part series called College Behind Bars. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that was an incredible conversation because she had witnessed something incredible, talked about how she had, they'd kind of stumbled into the story and watched uh, very closely for a long time as these men and some women who were incarcerated in the New York State penal system were taking actual college courses taught by Bard College, the prison, the, the Bard Prison Initiative, I think it's called, and how they had changed their lives and achieved through this very, very rigorous learning. I was just blown away by that. The interview with Sarah Koenig uh, in episode 26, uh, who uh, was the original uh, narrator, uh, voice of the first serial podcast. Uh, and particularly, I got to say, the reaction we got to that interview, because there are a lot of people who loved serial, but quite a few people who did not mm -hmm. and thought that uh, Sarah Koenig and serial had uh, really done wrong to that uh, man who was the focus of it and who had been convicted of the crime in the eyes of many people wrongly convicted. So we heard from a lot of them. Uh, the interview with Larry Krasner, the man elected in 2017 to be DA of Philadelphia, that really spoke to me too uh, because uh, I know Philadelphia. I live there. Um, I know what the district attorneys have been like in Philadelphia for a long time before he came along. And Krasner could not be more different. Uh, Philadelphia, certainly for Pennsylvania, but just nationally, was one of the toughest on crime DA offices, sent more people to death row than any other place in Pennsylvania, go on and on and on. And Krasner comes along, and he's a civil rights lawyer. He has sued the police department over 70 times in his career. And he speaks an entirely different language and game. Uh, he becomes the face of, but he would tell you himself, and he did say to us, not, it's not him, it's the movement. Mm -hmm. And he is elected with a mandate to do things differently and goes ahead and does it. Uh, and, of course, uh, we covered the fact that he was reelected despite very, very heavy opposition. You know, I looked around. We had a couple of wonderful progressive DAs elected around the country. We had Aramis Ayala in Orlando. We had Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. We had Kim Fox in Chicago. In County, yes. Mm -hmm. but, you know, when we when you looked around and saw and, and many others. But when you saw that, you realized something was going on. It wasn't that I or any of us was so important. What was going on was that the politicians, the institutions had it wrong. People deeply wanted to end mass incarceration. They deeply wanted to have a more just system, one that was accurate, one that was fair. They were tired of what was going on. And that was why the movement was electing people around the country and re-electing them now 
by the way, in many different locations. You may not know this, but as we sit here, 10% of the United States has elected a progressive prosecutor who is making decisions with their significant discretion and power in those jurisdictions. And they're big jurisdictions. So what that means is that if you're talking about mass incarceration, the drivers of mass incarceration are big jurisdictions. Look at Los Angeles, the largest criminal justice jurisdiction in the United States just last year elected George Gascon to be its progressive prosecutor. That's going to have a huge impact on the California, not just L.A., but California's level of incarceration. Then, you know, as I was saying before, when we start to talk to people who have been incarcerated, those interviews really had a great effect on me. Episode 115, I would say, uh, with uh, Robert Weidman, who goes by the name Farouk. Uh, uh, Farouk is the brother of the novelist John Edgar Weidman, and he went to uh, prison for over 40 years, and he is now out. We talked to him about what the transition is like. He was so soft-spoken, but I, I, there's some of his words I can't forget. That's when you become a teacher. That was the greatest thing that happened to me. Besides uh, the fact that I quit using drugs, it was education. Yeah. Uh, and when I became a teacher, I found out that I could help people and that it felt good. Ah. See, I had been a user all my life. I used everyone and everything. And I was always looking out for me mm-hmm. and looking for a way. How can it benefit you? Yes. Everything, even friendships, relationships, everything, even family members. Uh, I'm blessed that they still love me. But learning to start teaching, watching people get excited about what I was showing them uh-huh. and seeing how much they appreciated it made me feel better time after time after time. After every class, I would go out of class uh, with a certain excitement, uh-huh. with a guy walking uh-huh. with me uh-huh. and me explaining to him about the quadratic equation or or explaining to him about some word problem he couldn't get. And uh, so it just became, you know, sort of my motto uh-huh. is that whenever I'm feeling bad, the quickest way I can feel better is to help somebody else. There was the interview we did with uh, two gentlemen, Norm Conti, who was a professor at Duquesne University, and Tyrone Wirtz, a formerly incarcerated person. They both talked about the inside-out prison exchange program. This is a prison uh, program in which universities partner up with prisons. They bring in students, and a full-scale class is taught consisting half of university students and half incarcerated people, and they learn together. Uh, And that had a great impact on me, and I could not get it out of my head for a long time thinking, gosh, I would really like to do that. That sounds so great. Then, um, I mean, for sheer impact, I just don't know if there was anything like the interview we had with a gentleman who went by the name Chanton. Chanton is incarcerated in North Carolina on death row. We got to him because he's a published writer. His writing is in a volume called Crimson Letters, and the the editor of that book came to us. We did a show, and we interviewed Chanton uh, through the prison phone system. And there are some things he said I will not forget 
about being a human being. Death Row isn't a place that lacks humanity, like some people say. It is where humanity is rediscovered and restored. On Death Row, the meaningfulness of life tremendously exceeds the inevitability of death. We're all human beings, and as such, we're prone to mistakes. But many inmates are simply paradigms of the great fall before triumph. Our humanities are not beyond repair. And any judicial system that conceptualizes such nonsense is flawed. To give up on a person's humanity says a lot about our own. And we can never fully share in the humanity of others until we have recognized and repaired our own tendencies towards cruelty and unconscious bias. This means forgiveness, accountability, faith, and in many cases, a second chance. No matter our personal or collective opinion, no one would ever deserve to die. So, uh, yeah, hard to pick one. Uh, there were so many, uh, and I, I don't want to disrespect any of my guests. Uh, I had so, so many good conversations, but those are some of the ones that spoke to me. What about you? Did you have favorites? Well, I mean, you, you really named several of them. The Sarah Koenig interview stands out, obviously. Larry Krasner, I was really excited about. I think I was pestering you for a while to try and get him. <laughs> yes. When he was elected, it was so... Um, it was it was surprising. I mean, maybe that's an understatement. But you were talking before about how some of these frames now have, for better or worse, I think better, shifted, and we're yes. coming at these problems in a different way. Whereas in the past, police reform was something that you would try to affect at the uh, you know the barrel of a lawsuit or some other method. Mm-hmm. People were not thinking in terms of like, can we elect prosecutors? It's a yeah, recent idea. Pro- it's very yeah. It, yeah. It, was, it was new. That was fascinating. The and again, the stories of people in prison on death row, uh, people reintegrating after having been incarcerated. Oh um, yes, that was a good one, Mr. F and Mr. R. But I just think that they had no clue as to individuals. Like they had certain paths that you could take. Well, you could get this job or that job, but everybody is not meant to do every job. You see, when you graduate college or you come from the military or something, you find a job is for you or not. You knock around a little, but we were not afforded that opportunity. Like once they, you okay, you have a job, even though the job could not make you independent, it would condemn you to be poor forever. And you have no, you've been gone so long, you're starting from ground zero. And so, but they, it was technically a violation to quit a job and go back to school or look for other employment. And they would just say, well, you have a job and a place to stay, you're successful. And I thought, well, no, I don't. So it became apparent to me that I had to create my own form of success. I had to create my own paradigm and that these well-meaning people, some of them, some of them were not so well-meaning, but what they had in common, what they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Those guys told the truth, I got to say, <laughs> in a very forceful and interesting way. They're good people. Mm-hmm. Shifting a little bit to talk about what I think has probably been the most popular segment of the show going back to the beginning. In fact, this was, this was something that you were excited about at the onset, at the, at the inception of this project. Um, I'm talking about lawyers behaving badly. Oh, of course. It's always so much fun to listen to because I can tell how much fun you're having. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're really entertaining stories, sometimes uh, horrifying, but you manage to tell them in a way, in a way that's uh, still fun. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, what, where did you get the idea to do Lawyers Behaving Badly? What was the appeal of that idea, and why do you think uh, you know, people have taken to it? 
Well, you know, the, the, there's the history of lawyer jokes. We could right. go on for a long time talking about that. But it seemed to me that this was uh, this was something that needed saying. I mean, there was a serious point behind it, uh, disguised in humor. Uh, for me, there was too many cases in which lawyers behaved badly. And being a lawyer and loving the legal profession, I can say that, um, it is uh, something that I, I always wanted to draw more attention to in the sense that um, it is not the things that we should be doing. Um, and uh, um, not everybody in the profession that I know and, and whose opinions I value is really happy that I did that. Um, but it proved very popular, as you say, and I loved doing it because I could uh, take something and usually play it for laughs, right. but still make the very serious point that, can you believe that people do this? Now, I'm not naive. I, I'm sure that people in many professions, uh, whether they're doctors or firefighters or police or whoever, uh, do behave badly. But uh, the stories of lawyers have always held a certain fascination for me, good, bad, and indifferent. And uh, this was a, just a chance to do something that I thought would make people laugh even while they're maybe getting an important point. And um, I, I, can't, I almost can't explain the feeling that comes over me as I do these things. Taking a story of somebody doing something really cringeworthy or stupid or outright criminal and being able to turn it into something that people uh, can both be amused by and slap their foreheads and go, oh, can you believe this? Um, and that really is a way to teach. That's what it comes down to for me. But I just had fun with it. I just love doing it. Did you anticipate that so many of the ill-behaved lawyers would turn out to be judges? Was that part of the plan? No, I didn't. I really didn't. Um, I mean, I appeared in front of enough judges uh, to know that there were plenty of judges who behaved badly. But going into it, it never occurred to me, honestly, that we would be talking about judges. But as I looked for stories to end each episode, I found so many about judges. It was just appalling. I mean, and I shouldn't have been surprised. Like I said, I used to do this work. I know... You don't get to be a judge necessarily because you're the greatest scholar with the most sober personality. You get to be a judge because you were the governor's law school roommate. That, that is usually qualification number one. Uh, I'm painting with obviously with too broad a brush. There are many, many good judges. Uh, I had the privilege of working for one just out of law school who I, I just dearly loved. And there are plenty right here in Pittsburgh that I know. Um, but uh, that makes the bad behavior of the few really stand out. And they bear a special responsibility to uh, behave themselves and treat people decently. And it is just so bad when they don't that I got to say I started looking for it after a while. You were talking earlier about how this experience has changed the way you think about so many of these ideas and, you know, realities that are at the core of your, you know, your academic and your legal, uh, your career going way, way back. What about the new skills that you've picked up? Yeah. You have, you have really come a long way as a broadcaster, if I may say. Um, Thank you. What have you learned from being in the host chair? Well, I, I've learned that you have to be prepared to ask people hard questions, and I hope I've done enough of that. Uh, sometimes I wondered walking away, did I really press the person on this point? And that's, that's part of the learning process, uh, that you come back maybe next time and you do a better job at that. 
I've always tried to allow the guests to speak for themselves, to tell their own stories in a way, uh, whether it's about a research paper or something that they did or some work that they're doing. And I would say sometimes uh, I've, I've allowed that to a fault. Uh, I've allowed some, some to just go on too long. And I, I, I have regretted some of the lengths of, of some of those answers. And that's my responsibility. So, again, I, I'm learning as I'm going. I guess the other thing I would say is that the best thing you can do uh, when asking questions to people uh, is to listen uh, listening is such an undervalued skill in today's world. Uh, no less in, in broadcasting, I suppose, or podcasting. People come into things with fixed ideas, and that's why they ask the particular question. But it's much better to listen, and then you get to be surprised. Yeah. And that is where the real gold is. I mean, I mentioned the interview with Shantan on death row, which wouldn't have been, it would have been an extraordinary thing almost whatever he said, just for having done it. But just the things he said led me to the question, how do you, how do you live a real human life in the circumstances you find yourself? And as I said before, his answer continues to come back to me uh, in many circumstances that have nothing to do with death row and nothing even to do with the legal system. Uh, I have found myself thinking about those things when other things come up. The same thing with, uh, you know, some of the things Farouk Weidman said to me. And so uh, being surprised, coming to a question that you're surprised to ask, and then hearing the answer, those things were, were genuinely good experiences. As somebody who not only hosts a podcast but also listens to a lot of podcasts, mm. What has it been like for you to listen to your own show? Do you have that experience of listening to an interview you did and hearing something that you didn't catch the first time or that lands a very different way than it did in the moment? Yes. Oh, yes. I have definitely heard that. Uh, something I thought, uh, oh, this was terrible. I wish I could go back. And it turns out that, wow, that was actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I've had the opposite, too, you know, where I thought something was just wonderful. And what it was was me being a little too cute or something and the guest dodging my question or something. So, yes, it, it, it really can be a surprise to hear it. Uh, people always say they hate the sound of their own voice. Well, you get used to that in a hurry when you keep hearing it in headphones while you're doing the work. But, uh, yes, it has often surprised me. Even when I know it, what's coming, sometimes I don't realize what it really was until I hear it. Mm -hmm. What about interviews that felt good in the moment and also afterwards that really did go well? What are the, what are the best interviewing moments you've had? The best ones? Gee, like I said a minute ago, like when, when you get something really surprising, something that comes out that you did not expect – or other ones where you find somebody really sharing their enthusiasm about something that they discovered or have done or that they care about. I mean, there's really almost nothing better than that. Um, I had a, a, a teacher uh, in high school uh, who was very important to me, very important to my uh, waking up as a student and my intellectual growth. We became friends much later in life, uh, and we still are. And... Um, and he's, he's sort of given to adages and so forth. Um, and uh, we discussed this at some point uh, when we discussed our teaching styles because he actually came to watch me teach in law school after he was retired. And we realized we shared that thing of enthusiasm for our subject matter. And the thing he said to me was, 
he always calls his students kids because they're high school, I suppose. He says, kids don't care what you know. They want to know that you care. Hmm. And that's the thing that gets people interested. And that could take me away with anybody I might be interviewing, you know, just listening to them. It could be a kind of dry subject even. But if they cared about it, I knew it would communicate. And I knew I could ask things that would bring it out for people. So, Dave, what's next? If you're hanging up the headphones, hanging up the mic, what do you do next? Well, I wouldn't rule out coming back to this at some point in the right circumstances. But like I said at the, at the top, I need kind of a long break now. And we'll just see what happens. But here's, here's something interesting. I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago I really was very fond of the episode where I interviewed uh, Norm Conte and Tyrone Wirtz talking about the Inside Out program, mm. uh, the program in which you, uh, you have a class with half university students and half incarcerated people, and the class takes place in the prison, and they learn together. I was so intrigued by that and, and couldn't get it out of my head that I am now planning to do that very thing. Um, oh, wow. I, I actually got qualified for it. You have to take a training, uh, and it's very immersive. Uh, you learn a different technique. You're not teaching as the person in front of the class uh, handing out wisdom. You are much more of a facilitator. Uh, and, of course, you have to deal with the whole prison environment. You have a very different population, and these two populations have to learn to learn from each other. Long story short, I will be one of the very first law school teachers to do this. There have been a few others. Uh, Jim Foreman up at Yale has done it, uh, and there are one or two others too. Uh, I was actually all set to do this. We were going to have a class with my Pitt Law students and uh, incarcerated folks at uh, the State Correctional Institution, SCI Green, down in Green County, Pennsylvania, and then came Omicron, hmm. and we had to cancel. But I am gearing up for fall, and I can't wait. Uh, I have heard people talk about this, both the folks who have taken it when they were incarcerated and the people who've taught these things for years, and they just can't say enough. And I'm, I'm sort of ready for a new teaching challenge. I mean, I love teaching, and I get a lot out of it every year, and I change up my courses so I can do new things and keep myself sharp. Uh, but this can really be something different, and I am so looking forward to it. I just can't wait. So that's a big thing that's ahead for me, and uh, I'll have to wait till the fall for it. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'll do some writing and some other things in the meantime, too, and uh, see what else is out there. Well, it sounds like a good uh, topic for a podcast episode, <laughs> I may say. Didn't we already do that? <laughs> <laughs> so same question back at you. What, what do you see as next for yourself? You know, it's kind of more more of the same in some ways. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, your intro always makes mention of your day job that you're lucky to have. I am also very lucky to have uh -huh. a pretty good day job. I found my my nonprofit podcast home uh -huh. at the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I've been doing a show for them for going on six years. Wow, <laughs> years. Okay. I guess it's five years now. Uh -huh. And it's you know, and it's it's raising my kids mainly. I've got a I've got a middle schooler and and an incipient middle schooler. Intensive work. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's busy times. You've got plenty going on. Plenty going on. I guess uh, we should both uh, give ourselves the luxury of a sort of final comment. Any final thoughts? I mean, I did want to say that I'm heartened to hear you say that you're not closing the, do the door definitively on this. We've been kind of mm -hmm. having this conversation intermittently for well, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I think we've kept it going to some degree because neither of us wanted to be the one to like right. pull the plug. <laughs> but so, and thank you for that out. <laughs> you bet. But more than that, thank you for sharing this experience with me and for, you know, 
having the idea in the first place and bringing it to us and being curious and open and excited about learning new things. I hope I've picked up a little bit of that from you. You have. And I have certainly gained really valuable experience from just the day-to-day Week to week, uh, you know, work that has gone into putting putting the show together. It's, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, and for me, I would say thank you back to you. Uh, there's no way I could have done this without you, without your initial support when there was nobody there to say no. <laughs> and uh, we have just had a good time doing it. I could not imagine a better partner uh, to do this with. And. Uh, Uh, For all of your professional skills and uh, ability to make me sound good even when I didn't, it was matched and more by your humanity and uh, just the the fun of being around you and and working with you. Uh, It is something I I will not forget. Uh, So I thank you. And, of course, I want to thank the people listening again because uh, without them, we wouldn't have gotten to have all this fun. Uh, And that's been great. So, everybody, that will wrap it, at least for now. This has been Criminal Injustice, a listener-supported podcast. You can still find all of our content free to you on our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Enjoy, listen, use, and learn. Feel free to send a note on the website, too. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Josh Rollerson. And I'm David Harris. And who knows, I might be back with you sometime. <laughs>